0: Welcome to Yesterday Meets Today, Themes Throughout History. I'm Spencer Vollmer, your host and guide as we explore the themes connecting the histories of the distant and not-so-distant past with each other and also with our own more recent history. Together, we'll boldly venture out in pursuit of knowledge, always striving to learn new things about the past, the present, and maybe even a little bit about ourselves along the way. back for week three of our festive food theme. So far we've looked at ancient Greece and a little bit of the Ottoman Empire. Now we're going to turn our attention to Africa. As you can imagine that leaves us a vast and diverse history to explore which means we'll have to take a slightly different approach. Here in Africa we aren't going to look at one specific time period or group of people. Instead we're going to explore our theme in African history through the different societies to find some points for our theme and hopefully give some different viewpoints within the history itself. Let's get started by taking a look at some marriage customs. Marriage was a critical institution in life among African societies. It appears to have been a universal expectation that all adults would marry. Marriage established kinships, expanded lineages, and formed strong familial ties. It was primarily focused on the betterment of the group. Various aspects such as love, divorce, monogamy, gender roles, and others were considered within the context of the family's interests, a topic I don't want to discuss in detail today, but one noted for discussion another time. The marriages took a variety of forms, betrothals, promises, abduction, consensual, and more also noted for discussion another day. One I do want to mention is bride wealth, the most common type of marriage. Effectively, it was like a reimbursement of sorts. Something paid by the kinship group of the husband to the kinship group of the wife. That said, it needs to be stressed that this wasn't a sale. The husband's kinship group wasn't buying the bride. In truth, it was taken as a sign of honor, beauty, and the reputation of the bride's family. Specifically mentioned items that were part of the bride wealth were yams and cattle. We start finding special involvements of food with the necessary approval of the parents of the would-be couple. Keep in mind that these marriages weren't formed through dating as they are today, but through arrangements and approvals of others in the kinship groups. One 18th century report on the manned culture which goes back thousands of years to at least 4,000 BCE and found in West Africa in what is today known as Mali, speaks of the groom presenting kola nuts to the bride's family in the hopes that they would approve of the union. If they did, they would eat the kola nuts and the bride then decided to accept the match or remain unmarried. Apparently this was the woman's only chance to marry and if she refused him, she couldn't marry at all. Let's take a minute now to talk about those cola nuts. They grow on the same name tree which is native to the African tropical rainforests and contain caffeine. If the name sounds familiar, that's because it is. From cola, spelled K-O-L-A, we get the word cola as in the caffeinated beverage. At one time it was used to flavor drinks like Coca-Cola, though that time has passed. In African history, particularly that of West Africa, the kola nut was and still is important in traditional culture and religion. Not only in weddings, as we're looking at now, but in other significant events, including funerals. Also, they were used in offerings, ancestor veneration, and other religious traditions. They are sometimes even used in a system of divination called obi divination, in which kola nuts divided into four lobes are cast on a special wooden board. Trained diviners then read and interpreted whatever patterns they saw. So these kola nuts are going to reappear as we go through our festive food theme, effectively being a festive food all on their own. Back to marriage, we also find liquor present in marriage ceremonies. In Igbo culture, the bride is expected to show her new husband to the audience. This is required before her father will take the bride wealth. He hands her a cup of palm liquor, which she takes to her husband, sips, hands it to him, and then tells the gathered audience that this is her husband and her father can now take the bride wealth. The importance of the kola nut and palm wine is a serious one, most notably in West Africa, as I've mentioned previously. The presence of these two food items seems to have been a way in which the legitimacy of a marriage was determined, that in addition to the bride wealth. While these marriage ceremonies took various forms, one or both of the kola nut and palm wine were present and significant. Another aspect can be found when looking at the Yoruba culture. While not initially called by this name, people are known to have lived in the Yoruba Land area of West Africa at least as far back as the 7th century BCE, and are still around with the culture having spread to other parts of the world. This includes right here in America, where some were brought by the Atlantic slave trade, and others who left Africa on their own in the later 1900s. They have a tradition called tasting the four elements as part of their weddings. While I am not entirely sure how far back in Yoruba history the tradition goes, it is still part of the weddings today. It is even spread to weddings in other cultures. The tradition involves the couple tasting four different flavors which are intended to reflect four distinct stages in a marriage. While the exact food used seems to vary, I found the following example. Cayenne is used for spiciness, honey is for sweetness, lemon is for sourness, and vinegar is for bitterness. It's tied to the for better or worse part of wedding vows and takes place during the ceremony. The idea is that the tasting is a symbolic way to show that the couple will be able to stay together no matter what comes their way. So in this case, the presence of festive food is probably on a more intimate scale than you were expecting. That's one of the things that's so interesting about festive food as a theme. It takes a variety of forms, even when talking about the same concepts, such as marriage and weddings. And remember that in talking about Africa as a whole, we're talking about many different cultures living all over and having their own customs, both similar to and different from each other. Some traditions endure, others fade. Let's shift gears now and move on to funerals. As with weddings, we're going to find similarities and differences among the various African cultures. One belief found in multiple cultures was and is the gathering of family and community to mourn. Most believe that the dead should be buried in their ancestral land. Among the Ashanti families in what is now Ghana, mourning took place on the deceased's homestead. These people were part of the larger Akan culture alongside nine other nation-states. The Ashanti eventually formed a kingdom in 1670, declaring their independence in 1701. They maintained the empire until British annexation in 1901, at which time the king was deposed and arrested. They were designated a protectorate in 1902 and eventually returned to self-rule in 1935. In 1957, they had a king once more, King Prempe II, and entered a state union with Ghana. With this, they were independent of the United Kingdom and continue as such to this day, currently under the rulership of King Osei tutu II. Their funeral traditions involved the view that death is a part of life. It was common to find that a funeral was in fact a celebration. The person's spirit was moving on, continuing to a new phase of life, rather than an end to it, to a place where the spirit was still connected to the community. Now, we are fortunate as we look at this. The Ashanti funeral traditions have endured to this day, so not only are we exploring the history, but we can even get a good idea of what it looked like by observing today's funerals. Attendees dressed based on their relation to the deceased. Relatives wore red, while others wore black. One place we find food is the burial itself. The body was often buried with various items, and food was among them. It was intended to help their journey to this new place. As for the funeral party itself, you would find food in the celebration. For smaller gatherings, food was served to participants in the family's own home. But given the nature of these funerals, the number of participants could be too large for this one home to accommodate. So food would be served in other places, but kept close to the family's home so as not to break up the funeral celebration. This is just one way we find food in funeral celebrations in Africa. The Luo culture in Kenya, indigenous to the Nile Valley where they can be traced back thousands of years, has two parts of their funeral traditions specifically related to food. After the burial and return to the deceased's home, food is brought to the family. This first serving is called Yaurut, which means opening the door. Married women are specifically cited as the ones to serve the food, though I could not find any particular reason for this. As with the Ashanti, neighbors were also invited to join. Curiously, if the surviving family members had enough domestic animals, they would slaughter some of them for food before buying any fish or meat for this meal. Again, I'm not entirely sure why they would do this rather than buying meat and retaining their own animals. Whatever the reason, this gathering for a meal was believed to please the deceased. The next part is another meal, this time called teto, which simply means cooking. This meal comes after Yaudhut and is a little different. This time, It is sons and daughters of the deceased who return to cook a meal for the dead parent. Obviously, this wouldn't take place if the deceased had no children. Each child contributed to this meal based on their means. This food was based on what the family enjoyed as a whole and often included meat, fish, and sugar. The firstborn was the first to open the fireplace and cook their food. This was regardless of any other factors only being the firstborn, mattered. These children of the deceased were cooking food only for their relatives. This meal was not a community event as the Yaohut was. It was a more intimate and personal time for the family. So you see how there are similarities with the Ashanti, but also differences including the teto meal. And you'll find more similarities and differences with each culture. The Baganda, found in Uganda, marked the end of morning by slaughtering a chicken which was then eaten exclusively by the male relatives of the house. The Abanyala also sacrificed at the end of morning, though in their case it was both cows and chickens which everyone ate, not just the male relatives. Not quite as celebratory in nature as the Ashanti or Luo. Still, we find family and community gathering, and we find food. Of course, I could go on to explore more cultures and their funeral traditions, and perhaps I will in a future episode. For today, we're now going to turn our attention to some festivals. To start, we're going to visit the Yoruba people again. The festival we're going to look at is the religious Osun Osogbo festival in Nigeria. The festival, which takes place today, has a history going back around 600 years. Osun, which is also spelled as Oshun, is an Orisha, or deity, of the Yoruba people. More precisely, she is a river goddess and one of the most powerful of all the Orishas. She is associated with several things, including water, purity, love, sensuality, fertility, and all things feminine. Similar to other gods like those found in Greece and Rome, she has human attributes as well. She can be vain, jealous, or even spiteful. Often she is seen as a protector or even savior of humanity. One myth has her in a central role in the creation and nurturing of humanity itself. Osun was sent by the supreme god Olodumare with sixteen other gods and was the only female among them. The males tried to bring life to the earth, but found they were unable to do so. So they turned to Osun, who used her waters to bring life to earth and humanity, as well as bring other species into existence. So according to this myth, she is responsible for the creation of humanity itself and, had she not responded to the pleas of the males who could not complete their task, none of us would exist. Traditionally, the first interaction between Osun and humans took place in Osogbo, Nigeria. So there you get the second half of the festival's name. The city is considered sacred and under Osun's protection. She is said to have granted the first humans in the area permission to build along her river, offering to protect and provide for them as long as they worshipped her. Offerings, prayers, and other rituals we might expect. It is from the tale of the first interaction that the festival grew. The festival takes place in August over a span of nine days, as it has before now. The events were centered around the king's palace and each day had a special significance. The festival opens on the first day with a bonfire. Sixteen lamps made of clay and heated in an oven were filled with palm oil. My understanding is that these lamps have always been made locally, not imported. They were then placed on a lamppost and, as tradition goes, it is considered to be a good omen if they burn through the morning. On the second day we find food as part of the festivities. Among other activities, such as visiting the tombs of his ancestors, the Oba, their king, held a large feast for the people. This was a feast for all to enjoy regardless of their place in society. Over the coming days, various sacrifices were made to different gods before the grand final day. On this day, a trip was made to the Osun Grove, around two and a quarter miles from town. After the chief priestess arranged the various relics inside a calabash, which is made from a large gourd with the same name, a young girl no older than fifteen took the calabash to the grove. She is referred to as Arugba, bearer of the sacred calabash. Not only must this girl be young and beautiful, but she must also be a virgin. Once married, she can no longer carry out this duty. For the day, her hair was braided in a way I found referred to as unusually attractive and suited for the occasion. This may be related to the fact that she carried the gourd on her head. For the two-and-a-quarter-mile journey. A dark sack covered the calabash and veiled her as well. Worshippers, most often women, were ever-present at her side to guide her so that she never stumbled. That was extremely important. Moving on ahead to the grove. When the Oba arrived with his procession, he took a spot overlooking the Osun River. Festivities were carried out with music and dancing, among other activities. At one point, the Oba sat on a large stone slab in the grove, the same stone where it was believed the founder of Osogbo, La Ruye, sat when the goddess granted permission to build the town. In the couple of minutes he remained there, he and the gathered people prayed and made requests of the goddess for the coming year. At the conclusion, the Oba left first, and the people washed themselves in the water, drank it, and even carried some home. The Arugbo waited until everyone else left, at which time she and her attendants returned to the palace, and she placed the calabash on the palace shrine where it remained until the next Osun Osogbo festival. That's a general overview of the festival, though I do want you to know there's more to it than I've covered today. I look at two aspects of this for festive food. The first, naturally, is the feast on the second day, a time of gathering with food provided by the Oba. The second is at the Osun Grove. While not necessarily food as we've talked about it before, the drinking and bottling of the water caught my attention. In addition to bathing in the water, they found value in drinking it, so much so that they took some of it home which goes back to the myth where the goddess Osun brought life to the world with her waters. For those gathered to celebrate this festival, drinking the water would seem like a way to gain her blessing, especially those asking for fertility. So I think it fits our theme, at least a little bit. The next festival is another one still celebrated today, and one that we don't have a definitive age for. It has been around for a long time. We just don't know exactly how long beyond sometime in the sixteenth century. This is a festival with food and about food. It also takes place sometime in or around August. The Ga Homo festival's history is known only through oral tradition. The word comes from two Ga words Homo meaning hunger and wo meaning to hoot at. So combined it means to hoot at hunger. You'll soon see that this is actually quite literal, but before we get to that, it'll make more sense if we understand why. As the story goes, the festival was born from a time when the Ga arrived in the greater Accra area of Ghana. When they first arrived, they had to survive a famine that stretched over several years. The rains did not come as they normally did, leading to a drought. As a result, the crops didn't grow and hunger spread among the people. So the people were forced to fast, and they prayed. Eventually, the rains returned, and the crops grew once more. And so the festival was born to commemorate this famine and its end. So you can already follow how this festival in our theme is drawn from a time where food was in fact lacking. It's something I don't believe we've come across thus far. Representing the famine that came before the harvest, there was a ban on drumming, singing, and other forms of making noise for the month leading up to the harvest. The silence was also tied to a belief that the gods were working and needed the silence, which would likely mean working on the rain and the needed nourishment for the earth, and this ties back to the prayers that were made during the famine. When the harvest began, so did the festival. Music filled the air and people danced. They also would drum on their knees as a symbolic hooting at hunger, as had been done when the festival originated. It's so interesting to think that this festival actually centers around, and is named for, mocking the very idea of hunger. Before going out to dance, families would sit together for a meal. This was their time as a family unit to come together in gratitude and joy for the gifts of the gods. Only after doing so did they join with the whole community to do the same. A traditional ga food known as kepekpe is important to this festival. It's made from steamed, fermented cornmeal and palm oil, along with ogre or smoked fish, and served with palm soup. Traditionally, the family would all dip their hands into the same pot as a reminder that age, gender, and social status don't matter during Homowo. The head of the household would sometimes sprinkle this food where the deceased ancestors might find it, particularly in doorways. Not all participated in this ritual, however. Outside the family feast, ga priests sprinkled kapekpe around residential areas and cemeteries, symbolic of providing nourishment for both living and dead. An interesting festival, don't you think? Food is both a part of the celebration and the reason it exists in the first place. We find thanks being given for the gifts of the gods, including the food that people eat. For the last festival today, we're going to turn our attention to Ethiopia. Here we're going to look at the Timket, or the Ethiopian celebration of the Epiphany. The three-day celebration dates back to the 16th century. It's celebrated on January 19th, or In a leap year, January 20th, it is the middle of a three-day celebration. The date is marked by the Ethiopian calendar, not the Gregorian calendar. In the Ethiopian calendar, Timket is celebrated on the eleventh day of Ter. So it moves in the Gregorian calendar, but not in the Ethiopian one. As you would expect, the significance of this Christian celebration is rooted in biblical times. Ethiopia adopted Christianity early on. It was made a state religion in 330 CE by King Ezana in the kingdom of Aksum, which is now northern Ethiopia. This came after the religion had become widespread years before. A big part of Ethiopian Christianity centers on the Ark of the Covenant and Queen Makeda, who you may have heard of by the title Queen of Sheba. Legend says she ruled in the 10th century BCE and traveled to learn from King Solomon, desiring to be a good queen. After returning home, she gave birth to King Solomon's son, Menelik I, which established the ruling dynasty that lasted all the way through 1974 CE. It was believed that the Ark of the Covenant, containing the Ten Commandments tablets, was housed in Jerusalem. When Menelik visited his father to learn about being a king, he took the ark home with him and it is believed to have remained in Ethiopia since then. While the original is said to be in the church of Our Lady Mary of Zion, every church in Ethiopia has a replica called the tabot. For the festival, each tabot was carried out to a field where a tent awaited for it. The tent was used for nothing else. A senior priest was tasked with carrying the tabot while children would sing hymns and other priests danced with praying sticks. On the second day, which is the day called Timket, the baptism of Jesus Christ was reenacted. A nearby pool of water was blessed and either the people jumped into the pool or the priests sprinkled water on them depending on where in Ethiopia it took place. In some cases, this was a natural body of water and in other cases where necessary a body of water was formed. On this day, all but one tabat was returned to its church. The final tabat was returned to the church of St. Michael on the third day, called the Feast of St. Michael the Archangel. Still on the second day, between the symbolic baptism and the return of the tabats, people relaxed and celebrated. Dancing, games, and contests all took place in the field with the Tabit, and at least some feasting took place as well. More took place after the Tabits returned to the churches, at which time people returned home for a big feast with their families. I found mentions of two traditional foods for this family feast. Injera is the first. It was and is some sort of flatbread that looks like a really wide pancake. It's described as tangy, bitter, and a little sour. It was made not for eating on its own, but for wrapping meats and vegetables to be eaten all together. Another food I found is called Dorawat. It's a chicken cooked in a thick berber sauce. The berber spice blend is made up of garlic, chilies, and various warm spices like cinnamon. When combined with egg stew, the chicken forms a dish called Adisu Gebea, the national dish of Ethiopia and a staple at many Ethiopian festivals, not just religious ones, but also weddings, special family gatherings, and other events. In this time of celebration, they also gave thanks to God for all of his gifts and divine protection, so they ended the day with food, family, and giving thanks. More celebration took place on that third day, when the final tabit was returned, but this family feast is what I wanted to focus on today. And with that, we finish our last festival, at least for today. I think I mentioned this before, but it's certainly worth mentioning again. One of the great parts about exploring the topics we did today is that we have modern versions of the events, which sometimes made me move back and forth in talking about the past versus the present what is, and what was. Today they really did blend together and I hope it didn't get too confusing. We can see where some traditions were kept and others were set aside. We can see a direct connection to the present before we even start making our connections. Speaking of connections, this brings us to our conclusion of today's episode. Next week is Thanksgiving and we'll also be making our conclusions and connections. I hope you're looking forward to it. Until then, take care.